You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Colossians chapter 3, uh, verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are all called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have called us as your people to gather together, to sit under your word, to be shaped and formed by it, by your Son, through your Spirit. And we pray that all of that might happen this evening for your glory and for our own good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. Happy Memorial Day weekend. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you yet, I'd love to afterwards. Uh, Listen, if you know that something is going to happen, that it is sure to happen, or is even just very likely to happen, that changes your response to that thing, right? Like, if I lived in northern New Mexico, and I began to see actual flames approaching my house, and then I got an alert on my phone that the governor had issued, like, a go evacuation order, uh, I would move much more quickly at that moment than I would have maybe a week or two before when the hypothetical fires were out there. Or for years, many have invested in cryptocurrency because they have become so sure of the financial windfall on the other side. Or at least the risk is worth making because of the the potential windfall on the other side. How much more, though, if you have actually experienced something to be sure, not just something that is very likely to be sure. Not just a, yeah, I'll believe it when I see it moment in your life. My mom owns, she found this out a couple of years ago, owns a tiny, tiny fraction of a mineral right out in West Texas somewhere. Uh, I think she just got wind of this a couple of years ago that she got, she inherited this from uh, an aunt or something. Uh, About a year ago or so, though, a lawyer contacted her to tell her that she owned this. She thought it was kind of like, I don't know, she was being scammed or something. But he told her uh, that not only did she own this, but oil had been found where she owns this tiny fraction of this mineral right. And she was like, okay, uh, neat. Uh, Like, this changes nothing in my life. Kind of like, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, Well, sure enough, while it's not a ton, she started receiving checks for this oil money, uh, which I think indirectly makes me like an oil baron uh, or something. I don't know how that works. Uh, But here's the thing. When she started getting checks, she was now sure that one, she actually did have, own this mineral right, and two, oil had been found there. Otherwise, before that, it was kind of just hypothetical pretend It was theoretical. It was not sure. But now, her response to that theoretical ownership is totally different. Two years ago, it would have been foolish. Like if she had gotten a letter in the mail from this lawyer saying that she had this mineral right, it would have been really foolish for her to just go start spending money left and right. Uh, Maybe 
It wasn't really real. Maybe oil would never be found. It could have just been this dry plot of dirt somewhere out in West Texas. She would have spent money she didn't have, but now she can spend that money. She can save that money. She can invest that money. It would be foolish for her to act as if it did not exist. Well, last week, we thought a lot about sin and forgiveness. And if you're new joining us here this weekend or just visiting from out of town, uh, we are walking through, perhaps you're visiting this church this evening, and perhaps this service is a bit more liturgical than you may have experienced in your past. It's a bit more ordered, lots more standing up and sitting down, and when you do this and that and all that, right? Well, we've thought about over the last few weeks that every church service is liturgical. It just means it has an order of a service. And in fact, the way we worship, the way we order our services, actually does something to us, actually change and changes and forms our, not only our habits, but also our desires, the way we actually worship. So last week, we thought about sin and forgiveness, about confession and assurance. We are working through each element of our weekly service, our liturgy. Each element is intentional and specific. It moves from one theological element to the next. So after God calls us into his presence of holiness and glory to worship him, we are then confronted with this reality of our own sin, our frailty and weakness, yes, but even more than that, just our weakness, even more than that, our active, our weekly, our daily defiance, rebellion, which separates us from God. But God As we considered last week, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who come to him in repentance, that is, they are agreeing with God about who he is and agreeing with God about who we are. Now there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. And he welcomes us into belonging to him, being slowly transformed into his glory. There is a deep and eternal assurance because of the promises that God has made to us in Christ. Or as I've shared so many times from you, from John MacArthur, if I could lose my salvation, I would. I totally would, if it were up to me. But God, for those without assurance from God to act like they have assurance would be to surely act foolishly. But just as foolish would it be for we folks who have assurance from God in Christ to now act like we don't have it. And so the natural and theological response of the Christian, of God's people, is exactly that. A response of assurance, of belonging. So tonight we're going to think through our response of assurance in two parts. And thinking through the next two parts of what we do here on Sundays together. First of all, a song of assurance and then a profession of assurance. A song and a profession of assurance. These are both responses flowing from our assurance in Christ. So first of all, a song of assurance. Similar to the question that I asked when I was just introducing this whole series three weeks ago, have you ever thought about why we sing as Christians? Perhaps you, you just grew up in the church. Your parents were Christians, and from the moment you can remember— as an infant or a toddler growing up, like you've been around the church, you've never thought about how actually weird it is what we do. We stand up, sometimes we sit, but more often we stand up and we all like look at a screen and we sing the same words of a screen 
on a screen. Why do we do that? Is it just to like break up the time? Kind of like a church service is supposed to be about an hour, but it'd be really weird if one person just talked the whole way through. Uh, So this is something that we should do just to kind of break it up a little bit. Is it a way for us to show off some really good musicians? Or if you've been around enough churches, is it a way for us to show off some really terrible musicians? No. Music and singing are incredibly important, and they are doing many different things simultaneously for many different audiences. So, we're going to think through singing now in three distinct audiences. Worship through music is for me, is for us, and is for God. It is for me individually, it is for us corporately, and it is for God. So, here's the deal. Let's think through what music, what worship through song does to us and for us individually. People are musical. We sing to our babies. It's just what we do. We go, like if you, if you were to go to any concert of any kind of musical genre, just like stand in the back and observe people. It's really interesting. There's something very weird that happens, like anthropologically, like who we are as humans. People just move about. They tap their feet. They snap their fingers. They clap their hands. They show that people really start moving and feeling it and dancing. Music blares from our cars, from our earbuds, from our TVs. Different cultures express music in different ways, but we are a species of music. Music can do something that images and even words can't do. So maybe you've perhaps heard the story that advanced audiences of Jaws, the movie Jaws, uh, screened the movie before John Williams' like epic musical score was added to it. And when you watch this movie without any music behind it, these, these advanced audiences laughed their way through what they thought was like a hilariously terrible movie. Maybe you've seen the, on YouTube the uh, last scene of A New Hope from Star Wars where Luke and Leia, or Luke and Han and Chewie are all there and they're getting their medals but there's no music. It is terrible. It is a terrible, terrible scene. But if you add the music to Jaws, that movie becomes a, not a, Just a terrible, terrible movie, but it becomes a terrifyingly amazing movie. The music itself becomes like a character in and of itself. Music within movie montages can make you cry. Music just seems to have a way that it seeps into our memories, into our imaginations, into our souls. How many of you grew up in Sunday school or grew up going to like VBS or something And you still, to this day, have scripture verses memorized because it was set to music. I think most most of us do. We know so much scripture just because we sang songs in a way in which that if we were five or six or seven, if we just tried to read it and memorize it in that way, it wouldn't have stuck. Well, perhaps Paul knew of the power of music when in Colossians 3 he wrote, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. How is it that he says, how is it do we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly? By waking up in the morning and going out to a 
grassy field with a beautiful sunrise with a cup of coffee or something and reading the Bible on our own? No. That's, well, you could do that. But what is his command? How do you let the word of Christ dwell in you richly where it seeps down into your soul? By singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Have you ever learned something about God in a real and visceral way because it's set to a song that seeps really, really deep into your soul. Now, I'm not trying to pit reading the Bible on your own compared to, or against, over and against, like singing these same truths together. It just does something differently. They are complementary things. Maybe you memorized Romans 8.1 and have read Romans 8 a thousand times. But then the last few years, it is that truth, that assurance of Belonging to Jesus has settled more deeply in your soul because over and over again over the past few years we've sung together, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. There's something about singing that together where that truth, that reality of God's love for us and Christ's faithfulness to us that begins to get down into our hearts. After singing those truths for a few decades, I'm just telling you, I am telling you, your confidence and assurance of salvation is going to grow. It will grow, it will grow, it will grow. And you'll leave here singing those songs. When we walk out of these buildings, on Sundays, usually, or maybe I'm weird, I think this is probably the case for most of us, we walk out of here with songs in our heads, still in our imaginations, in a way that like my sermon outline doesn't stick in your head, and that's okay. The words we sing on Sundays are invariably making their way into your life, whether you know it or not. And one day, I'm actually pretty confident of this, these songs will be a great anchor for you. We want to learn and sing songs here together. We don't do this for every song that we pick and implement together to sing congregationally, but we basically have three criteria for filtering whether or not we should sing this song or that song. Can it be sung a cappella? That is, without needing to have a face-melting guitar solo. Can it be sung a cappella in 50 years? around a hospital bed? Can it, does it have lasting power? Can it, is it likely that this song is going to last or is this like a flash in the pan? And can this song be sung around a hospital bed? That doesn't necessarily mean that each, this song has to be a song of grief or lament. We can still sing songs of praise and confident hope around a hospital bed. But will this comfort the dying in some way? Music can do things for us individually, anchoring us to the promises of God. But it can do things individually and even emotionally in us well, not just in 50 years around a hospital bed, but today, sitting or standing in these pews. Like, do you sometimes think it's kind of weird when people raise their hands in a church service? Some of you might think, I think it's kind of weird that that preacher would even ask that question because we should all be raising our hands more. But perhaps you from other church traditions are a little uncomfortable by others raising their hands or certainly by you raising your hands. 
But for those of you who do think that question is weird, do you think it's weird? Like when you see one of those aerial shots of the entire basketball stadium when someone hits like a game-winning, buzzer-beating three-pointer, what happens? What does like 20,000 people do instinctively at the exact same instant? It's just what we do. It's in us to do that. We do it at the end of a a game-winning touchdown or a last-second goal to win the game. What does every single person who is invested in that game just instinctively and naturally do? What do people do at a concert? What do people do when they see a loved one that they haven't seen in so long? And then we run, we, we just, this is like a movement that is in us, that is just waiting to get out. When a moment of emotional and personal response happens here, here's the thing, don't be more self-conscious or self-censoring than you would be at a basketball game. That's something good to respond to the glories of God, to respond to the goodness of Christ in the same way that we would do in so many other settings in our lives. And yet, not all Sundays and not all songs should be basketball games. This week has been a particularly difficult week for some in this church and certainly amongst national news. This week should bring lament. And several have observed over the years that the American church's allergy toward sad songs of lament and instead our weekly desire for those like quarter note bass drum anthems of victory, that is actually kind of just the prosperity gospel slowly sneaking its way into our churches. How's that? Well, these songs are almost tricking us to believe that every day and every Sunday should be a service where only victorious people belong, where only triumph and victory, yes, now, belong, where tears are not appropriate or are not welcome, where the weak, where the frail, where the brokenhearted, where the depressed, where the anxious, where the grieving do not belong where lament does not belong. And so, here, when we're picking songs, when we're thinking through the beginning to the end of each service, we try to vary our diet between the triumphant and the lamenting, between songs of confession and songs of victory. Songs that will help you and you and you and you, because we all find ourselves in different places each Sunday but will also help you today and then you tomorrow when your circumstances change and you next year and you when you get the cancer diagnosis. And so today has certainly been that way already and we'll end our service in singing songs that are a bit more reflective, that are preparing us and anchoring us to the reality of the world in which we live. But if singing is for you, individually, it does not end there. It is also for us. I read this last week that Paul wrote our Lord in his letters. Paul wrote the plural third person, our Lord, 53 times in his letters. Do you want to know how many times he wrote my Lord, the individual, my Lord? 
once. 53 to 1. Christianity is communal. You are not a free agent. So Paul says something else about worship through song in Colossians 3 that I think we rarely think about and that can be overlooked. It's just the pluralness, the plurality of it all. Listen to this again from Colossians 3. This is now the third time you've heard this read. And let the peace of Christ rule in, and you missed this in our English Bibles, in your plural hearts, to which indeed you, plural, were called into one body. You, individuals, were now called into a corporate body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in plural, you, richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. How? Well, by singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in plural, your hearts. We can teach and even admonish one another by singing. In a similar passage to Colossians 3, Paul says this in Ephesians 5, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, in spiritual songs. Have you ever thought about that? I think perhaps we think about the audiences to which we're singing. Maybe sometimes we sing to ourselves, bless the Lord, O my soul, we might sing. Or certainly we think about God as an audience, but have you ever thought about one another as an audience that we should be addressing, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Have you ever thought about the other person on the other side of the room as you were singing? Not if it's a concert hall, like we thought about two weeks ago. When you're at a concert, you aren't thinking about other people at the concert, other attenders, you're just thinking about the band on stage and if they're good or not. But if it's a banquet hall, if what we do on Sundays is not a concert but a banquet, then we will, of course, think of each other. So tonight, in our call to worship song that we sang, I was singing to all of you, and whether you know it or not, you were singing to me. Oh, worship the king. We could be singing that to ourselves, but we are singing to each other. And I didn't turn around and look at you, because that would have been kind of weird. But here's what I sang to you. Oh, worship the king, Christchurch, all glorious above. And then, Christchurch, listen, as I'm singing to you, gratefully sing along with me of his wonderful love. Like, I love this building that we meet in, in here. I love the high ceilings and that we can hear each other sing in this building. But the thing that I don't like most about this building is these forward-facing pews. Because all we see is each other's backs of our heads. I love to be in a room sometimes on a Sunday at a church where it's more like semicircle, where you can turn and look and see each other's faces. Because worship is a communal thing. I'm singing these encouragements to myself, but I am singing to you all as well, and you are singing to me. I'm not saying that when you are perhaps like you've got a Spotify playlist and you're singing songs of worship alone in your car, I'm not saying that you aren't worshiping, but you're missing the best aspect of it, of being with each other, of singing together, of belonging to others. It's been said that when you join a church, you join the choir. That's the best. I actually kind of like, I would love if we had a choir on stage just to add more 
I don't know, more voices and more leadership up here, but I actually like that we don't have a choir because you're the choir. We are the choir. All of these instruments up here, they are all here just to support the most important instrument in the room, the congregational voice. That is the most important instrument in this entire room, is our, yours and our voices as we sing to the Lord and to each other. I don't know how many times that I have been encouraged by one of you, probably almost all of you at one point or another, because I know of the week that you have had, the month that you have had, the year that you have had. And then you are still loudly, maybe even through tears, but loudly hanging on to the promises of God. Even if by a thread, you are here, you are singing to the Lord. I am taught by that in a way that maybe reading a sentence of theological doctrine just doesn't do. Or my heart and soul might be taught in a way that my head had only just been previously taught. But now, I believe more and more because you are encouraging me by your faith. We come here on Sundays, we sing on Sundays for one another. But we corporately do that because we corporately belong to God. He does not just save individuals, he saves a people unto himself. So we sing to ourselves, we sing to each other, but who else? Obviously. Lastly now, for God. Back to Ephesians 5, Paul says this, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We address one another, but we sing. We make melody to the Lord. Remember from Leviticus that while it's good that our hearts can be individually and emotionally moved in a worship service like this, that's actually not the point. It is just a welcomed side benefit to be stirred emotionally. We don't come here for a worship experience. We come here to offer and to give worship primarily to God. We worship God. We do not come to be moved. When we are moved, that's wonderful, but that's not the point. So if you aren't singing to the Lord with your heart, in Paul's Ephesians 5 words, giving thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ, you actually are not worshiping. You're just moving your mouth and some words are coming out. God desires for us to sing songs of glad adoration as we gather together. So this takes intentionality, especially with the songs that you've sung a thousand times in your life. It can be very easy just to turn your brain off and just sing along. You don't even have to think. This takes effort to concentrate on the words that you are singing on the truths that you are rehearsing. As we are seeing these truths together, pay attention and offer these praises to God. But God not only desires this from us, he commands it. Just as we are commanded to gather together, we are commanded to hear the word preached, we are commanded to sing, not out of duty or obligation, but out of an overflow of gratitude and worship. Just like, just like birds Birds sing their loudest when the sun begins to warm them. Christians ought to sing loudly and joyfully when we are warmed by the gospel of grace.
I recently read that we don't sing to God because life is good. We sing to God because God is good. And that couldn't be more true. The promises that we sing of each week are always true regardless of how our week went. And so we sang tonight, what truth can calm the troubled soul? We answered that truth in quotations. What truth can calm our troubled soul? That God is good, that God is good. Where is his grace and goodness known? Heavens know we look around and see the world around us and there seems to be no goodness and grace there, but where do we look? In our great Redeemer's blood. Who holds our faith when fears arise? Who stands above the stormy trial? Who sends the waves that bring us nigh unto the shore, the rock of Christ? It is for God and to God that we ultimately sing, that he might get our hearts, our worship, our faith. And yet, he does command us to sing. I was looking up the word sing to find a verse or two more to convince you that God desires his people to sing to him, but I was overwhelmed. The word sing or singing or song appears 259 times in the Bible. That's a lot. Over 50 of those times is a direct command from God making the command for his people to sing one of the most frequent commands of God in the entire Bible. Sing. And yet I think we can hear a sentence like, well, if you aren't singing with thankfulness, you aren't worshiping, you're just moving your mouth. I think we can hear a sentence like that or a truth like that. And then on Sundays when we aren't particularly feeling that close to the Lord, when we aren't feeling particularly thankful or worshipful. And then we might assume, well, God doesn't want me to come to church today. Or when I do come, God doesn't want me to sing today. He wants my heart more than my words. And my heart just isn't in it this week. So I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I'm either not going to go to church or I'm not going to sing. But I was recently talking about this impulse with my friend Drew Hodge, if you know him, over at Desert Springs, and Drew brilliantly said this. He said, if you say, I can't worship unless, then whatever you say next has become your mediator, a so-called priest that serves as a musical conduit for your engagement with God. If you say, I can't worship, I can't sing unless I feel it, unless I've had a good week or a better week, then your emotions, your good week, have become your functional savior. I can't worship God unless that thing comes through. Your feelings are your savior. God is your savior. He has done the work of your redemption, not your feelings. He, has, he is worthy of your worship in whatever state that you find yourself. Yes, he wants your heart. He wants your heartfelt worship. He doesn't want hypocritical worship. But how many times in your life has being here on Sundays, how many times in your life has singing praises to the Lord when you didn't really want to, where all of that has actually been the means through which God has reoriented your heart? It has for me just countless times. We're singing because God commands it of me, even though I don't want to or don't feel like it, that's the thing that God uses. 
And of course, why would he give us commands to sing unless he intended to use those commands for our good? In fact, it's in times of uncertainty or loss or lament that Israel finds itself in Zephaniah 3, where God tells the people in Zephaniah 3, verse 14, he says, Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. And then in verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. That's an incredible verse in the Bible. The love of God in the gospel will actually quiet the hearts of his people. He will quiet our dread, our anxiety, our fear, our accusation, our self-loathing. Do you want to know how you can actually and experientially feel and know the love of God? By singing to him. By singing to God, this becomes a primary means by which we can then feel and experience the reciprocal love of God, the singing of God over us. While the certainty of God's faithfulness to his people in Christ will quiet the loud and stressed screaming of our hearts, the the cross of Christ then should not cause us to be quiet. Music is amazing. What a gift of God that music is to us. Worshiping together in song is a huge deal for us as Christians. But we can't worship, we can't worship well unless we know that we are forgiven, that we belong to Christ. And we can't know that we are forgiven if we aren't first confessing our sins. We have no reason to confess our sins unless there is a holy God who calls us to worship himself. And yet, if singing does all of this, that by our singing we can feel and experience God's love and singing over us, we don't stop there. We don't stop with just singing. So now, a bit more briefly, but importantly, let's consider a profession of assurance. If we, if singing is a response of our assurance, then professing our faith is also a response of our assurance. So having sung together, we next move into professing what we believe to be true together. But not just together with those of us who are in this room, but together with the saints throughout the centuries. So I know that I'm like a history nerd, but the, super, the, the history of confessions of faith is altogether just super interesting. I love it. Uh, early confessions, like the Apostles' Creed, like the Nicene Creed, like the Athanasian Creed, were products of the early church coming together to crystallize and to solidify what was the overwhelming Orthodox Christian belief. Unlike what fictions, which mask themselves as histories like the Da Vinci Code might try to describe, there wasn't just like an open marketplace of equally viable Christian ideas that then the religious and political elite came in and like clamped down on to just crowd out anybody that they didn't like. No, these councils and creeds did indeed interact with contradictory teachings out there, but these were teachings, these contradictory teachings that that were minority, that were geographically limited, and were aberrant from the clear teachings of of the scriptures. So these early confessions of faith sought to summarize 
biblical doctrine. Summarize doctrine of the universal church by clarifying things like the divinity of Christ, the triuneness of the Godhead, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. These early creeds are the just absolute bare minimum for Christian belief. And all Christians of Orthodox belief will affirm and hold to these early creeds. If you want to read more, I know I held up a bunch of books last week. Here's some more summer reading. These, both of these paperbacks are 10 bucks on Amazon, and they're wonderful. Uh, Justin Holcomb wrote, Know the Creeds and Councils, a bit of history and what these creeds and councils were about, and Know the Heretics. Perhaps you're going on a beach vacation, and you need some beach reading. You can crack open, know the heretics, and it'll be great. You'll understand history, but you'll also, I'm confident of this, understand, by understanding history, you'll also understand present theology and doctrine more clearly. So, by regularly using these early creeds, we connect ourselves to both the early church as well as millions of Christians who have also professed these truths in their gatherings throughout the centuries. But these are just the early creeds. In the 15 and 1600s, a new round of confessions of faith began to be produced and published as the Reformation was clarifying biblical doctrine over and against the tradition of the Catholic Church by then trying to connect themselves to the early apostolic or primitive church, as they called it. So German Lutherans wrote the Augsburg Confession or the Heidelberg Catechism, which we use tonight. The Dutch Reformed coalesced around the Belgic Confession. The Church of England under Elizabeth I settled on the 39 Articles and the Book of Common Prayer, while later English Presbyterians wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith at the very same time that early English Baptists were writing their first London Confession of 1644 and their second London Confession of 1689. Let's get in the weeds a minute here. I know some of you might be rolling your eyes. Many Reformed Baptist churches out there will call themselves a 1689 church because they strictly subscribe to that wonderfully written confession of faith, that second London confession of 1689 of the Baptists. They will, and in fact, to be a member of a church that strictly subscribes to the 1689 confession, you as a member, to become a member, you have to affirm every word of that confession. We don't. We're Baptists, but we don't. These reformational confessions of faith were written in specific times in the midst of specific doctrinal controversies that were going around. They are like a snapshot of history. When you read the Westminster Confession of Faith, where you read the Second London Confession, or you read the Heidelberg Catechism, they're timeless truths, and yet they are a snapshot of history. So I've been thinking and even writing a lot about labels lately, but all of this is why I don't necessarily call myself a Reformed Baptist, but a Reformational Baptist. That sounds totally pedantic, I know. But I'm meaning that I am a Baptist who is connected to the theology of the Reformation. That is a really comforting thing. Baptists are so much more than 20th or 21st century American Southern Baptists. Praise God. We have a rich and long theological heritage and history. But at the same time, I am not a snapshot exact copy of 17th century English Baptists who lived in London. We are living through and interacting with a different world today, culturally, socially, and even theologically. And yet, all of, most of, 
Nearly all of these reformational confessions are still unbelievably useful for us today, personally and together as a church. Every confession that I've mentioned in the past few minutes, we will from time to time use parts of those in our Sunday gatherings. Again, not only to connect ourselves to other Christians throughout the centuries, but also to the wider church who is outside of our distinct Baptist convictions. These confessions of faith can also act as wonderful teaching tools. By reading and speaking these professions and confessions, sometimes with dense and theologically weighty words, is to actually kind of go to seminary, to learn deep theological doctrine. But though we aren't strict subscribers to one of those confessions, that doesn't mean that we don't have, as a church, any doctrinal boundaries. In addition to affirming the Baptist faith and message statement from the year 2000, we at Christ Church, we have a one-page statement of faith. You can find that on our website if, like I said earlier of the 1689, if you are a member of a 1689 church, if you would like to become a member, we would not only hope, but demand that you affirm every single word of that one-page statement of faith. And we think that statement both locates us within the boundaries of the apostles and certainly the Nicene creeds, but then that statement of faith also speaks to modern controversies, like what it means to be a human, what it means to be a male or a female, about sexuality and marriage, controversies which the early church and the reformers would have only, they wouldn't have even imagined. There doesn't need to be a chapter in the Second London Confession or the Westminster Confession of Faith on same-sex marriage. That wasn't even a category of thinking. So in all of this, in response to God's holiness, in response to his call to worship, after our confession of sin, and then a response of song because of our felt and known assurance, then a profession of assurance. We profess together that we belong to God and we belong to his people. We are not individual Christians who have just thought up Christianity in the year 2022 in New Mexico. We are connected to the church throughout time and space. We belong to his people here in this room. We belong to his people around the world and we belong to his people throughout time. When we say, and again, it could be very easy for you to check out as we're reading these words in our professions of faith. Often from various historical professions, oftentimes we're just reading straight from the Bible, professing what we believe to be true. It can be very easy for you to mentally check out and to just move your mouth. Don't do that. Engage. That, and that is the time to turn your brain on hyperdrive and to really pay attention to the truths at which we are speaking and believing. When we say these words, when we mean these words, when we believe the doctrine and theology expressed in these professions, we belong. We belong to God. We belong to his people. We are taught and we are grown in faith. All of this, singing, professing, confessing, all of this shapes us. It trains and retrains our desires for what we want to be true. But all of this so far is still just moving us forward. This is not the end. It isn't these confessions and professions in which we place our hope. We are still moving next week toward prayer, to communing with our triune God. 
And then preaching together, placing ourselves under God's word. We'll do that in two weeks. And then the Lord's Supper, gathering around this table together in three weeks. What in the heck is this? Hang in there. And then once again in four weeks, then being, as God calls us to worship, then being sent out by God in a benediction. So we're just getting started. We're like halfway through. Not even there yet. We've done three weeks. We've got four more to go. And I cannot wait to keep thinking intentionally about what we are doing intentionally each Sunday. Let's pray that God would keep shaping us and retraining our desires. Oh God, we pray. We pray that we might worship well, that you have not uh, had us guess how we might worship you, but you have told us. And so we come following the pattern of those that we find in Scripture of you calling us, of confessing our sin, of singing together, of declaring what we believe to be true, of sitting under your word, of gathering around a covenant meal, of being sent out by you. We do these things weekly that you might get glory. But not just that you might get glory, but that you might shape us, that you might train us, retrain us, form us more and more into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus, who reigns now on our behalf and over us and over this entire cosmos. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we decrease, you might increase, and that by our Sunday gatherings, by our coming together as your people, the gospel might be on full display, and that you might get great glory in our lives, and that consequently we might get more and more joy, more and more meaning, more and more comfort by you in these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.